0: Hey everybody, my name is Justin Murphy, and this is the Other Life Podcast, where I talk with indie creators, digital hustlers, and unique internet personalities about how to escape from institutional conformity and succeed on the internet instead. To learn more about the Other Life Project, go to otherlife.co, that's otherlife.co. And if you like what I'm doing, I just have one quick favor to ask please go and just leave a review in iTunes. It really helps others find the show and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much and a big shout out, especially to my patrons. I could not do this without you all. So thanks. And now on to the show. We're going to have hopefully a very interesting and I think quite timely discussion around technology and particularly escape from the technological enslavement to use a word that i don't think is at all exaggerating that i think a lot of people are increasingly suffering from uh you know right now with the election i don't know what your twitter timeline looks like but as far as i can tell people's minds are being rotted to increasing degrees uh, to to a degree that i worry about for myself even as someone who sees himself as relatively detached and relatively mentally balanced even i find myself getting sucked into a degree. Uh, That, that frightens me Uh, both epistemologically, the things I find myself able to believe nowadays. uh, And then I sometimes have to pull back and pinch myself and, and, and really reflect on how captured I am sometimes by, by these screens that we get glued to. And yeah, Giannis and I uh, have taught a course already on Deleuze and Heidegger about a year ago, we did a live cohort and it was awesome. And then, you know, we, 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 we went separate ways to do different things. He's been doing his project uh, earnestly and quite successfully since then. And so have I. I've been uh, one of the reasons I haven't been uploading videos on YouTube that much. YouTube just hasn't really been a priority for me uh, over the past few months because I've really been focusing on this Indie Thinkers project. Uh, as many of you know, I quit academia, so I really have to hustle a little bit more aggressively and urgently than than maybe some other content creators because I'm really all in on this. You know, So I've been really hustling and working hard to build Durable, long-running, hopefully, uh, business systems essentially. So I can really build up in the long run, really build a serious media empire and a sustainable business uh, that is going to hopefully, if my vision is correct, you know, revolutionize the nature of of how intellectual life is conducted today. Johannes and I are now getting ready to reopen the Deleuze versus Heidegger seminar. I thought, uh, you know, a lot of our initial people who joined the course last year and really enjoyed it. I think, initially found us through YouTube. So it just made sense to hop back on here. Uh, This will be kind of a warm up for Johannes and I. We are uh, gearing back up, getting our noses back into the Deleuzean and Heideggerian texts on philosophy. And we thought, since we're going to open the course on November 22nd, that will be when it starts. Uh, For anyone who wants to join, we figured why not just jump on YouTube and have some preliminary discussions about the main themes. I'm sure there are some ways in which our perspectives might have changed a little bit, or we might have updated uh, our our perspectives on either Deleuze or Heidegger, in large part from the course that we did. So, you know, in the eight week uh, series that we do for the courses, we learn a lot ourselves from the participants in the course. It's it's always a kind of collective learning experience, and we, you know, might see things now that we didn't see at the beginning of the first course. So, I thought it would just be a fun idea. We both thought it'd be a fun idea to hop back on here unplanned totally live, unscripted, and basically just checking with each other and uh, see what we're thinking right now about the state of technology and particularly how technological enslavement seems to be manifesting today, concretely, maybe from a Deleuzian perspective, maybe from a Heideggerian perspective, and then try to share with each other and share with you what is our current thought on how to think about exit or escape from technological capture. And uh, I'll be curious to see if Johannes' attitudes or ideas have evolved in any way since I learned about them deeply from the first course that we did um, about a year ago. So yeah, I'm excited to talk to Johannes. I think that's enough by way of introduction. Uh, Real quick, I should probably say shout out to my patrons. Always so grateful for you folks. Couldn't do all the stuff I'm doing without you. You're the people who kind of helped me and and enabled me and empowered me to to take this plunge into building all these new things I've been building since I left academia about a year ago. And uh, yeah, so big thanks to the patrons as always. And before we get started, I just want to say that uh, if you're interested, even just curious about the course that I'm doing with Johannes on Deleuze and Heidegger, you can get the reading list. It's totally free. You just download it. Uh, I put a link in the description below. So even if you don't need a fancy, uh, intensive, uh, course with Johannes and I and the other participants, uh, you could just use the, the syllabus to do your own self-directed study. So please feel free to do that. You can grab the syllabus in the, in the link in the show notes. So, uh, yeah, let's get into this. Uh, Johannes has been patiently waiting in the wings. Let me, uh, bring him in now and uh, i will also be paying attention to the chat so uh please do let us know if you have any questions or you want to chime in on any of this johannes how you doing buddy
1: yeah good how are you good to see you again good yeah yeah we're usually just talking on the phone but
0: yep totally i haven't been i haven't been doing too much youtube as i mentioned before um but i think you have what maybe we should start by why don't you give us an update on everywhere you've been since last time you were on the channel because uh, I believe last time you were on the channel was quite a while ago, and you've been killing it. You've been working really hard making videos on YouTube, developing your own ideas, developing uh, more writing, I believe. Uh, you've been doing some collective writing experiments, I believe. And you've been doing your own courses. You've been doing a bunch of courses since we last talked. Yeah. So give us a quick update on on your own personal life and trajectory as, as a public intellectual.
1: So I think Justin and I talk. I don't know, maybe September, October last year or so to kick off the, the Lewis versus Heidegger course, which we developed after the first live stream we had, which was a three hour beast dialogue on Heidegger. I remember that one. Um, talking of what was it you say? People's brains are melting. I think ours were melting after those three hours, but Justin and I met, met in London last year and we talked for about 10 hours. Um, with a, with a with a one hour break or so in between, and we we kept talking, and then the idea developed to have a course on technology because that's your interest at the time was Deleuze. My I've written a PhD on Heidegger, um, and technology is one of the three. Heidegger is one of the philosophers of technology, obviously, uh, one of the first to to point out that perhaps there's something uncanny or weird about technology that there isn't. A straight continuation from a hammer to a nuclear bomb or to cybernetics which at the time um, when he raised the issues in the late 40s early 50s um, publicly and he did so by the way publicly with engineers and teachers and actually not to philosophers so that's very interesting I think it's also very relevant to mention this that Heidegger makes these points uh, and and raises these issues with people who actually work in technology who, who have to deal with um, what what these new powers um, give us make possible and also uh, what kind of destructive forces they are have. So, but to come back to what the, we developed the course over the, over the fall of 2019 and then launched it early on in 2020, which now feels like a decade ago because uh, this year, I mean, I had certainly planned to, to do more courses and be more active um, online because it's, one way of a line of flight to some degree, right?
0: I like it. You're but, really taking on the Deleuzean vocabulary, Johannes. I, this, was unexpected. Yeah, this is
1: unexpected. This is 2020. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. But I made a video early on in, during the, the COVID crisis in April where I, I made a spontaneous live stream, which is on my channel. I think it's actually entitled The Deleuzean Virus. And I, and I say during this live stream, I say I cannot put it in any other words. like the, the language. I can only describe this in it's the language I learned in our Heidegger versus or Deleuze versus Heidegger course. Huh. Um, and so, what I'm thinking right now is when we'll get to this, is that we need Deleuze first and then get to Heidegger, because Heidegger develops with the fourfold and more communities of mortals, etc., uh, a certain way of, of living, a certain ethos um, that perhaps is not there in, in Deleuze. But to decode what's going on, I think Deleuze is absolutely crucial. But what happened afterwards, so these, back then, um, this was a, I think, for both of us, it was a, you know, we we tried something. We didn't really know what would happen. I think it ran quite well. Um, We had about 25 people or so in the seminars. And after that i've been i've been teaching a course on idleness with dignity one on heidegger on death so my my book which is now coming up with springer my phd thesis was on death and heidegger and also technology and the thinking of the event and the fourfold and language poetic language etc um, i taught that and i just recently finished this week actually a course on on nietzsche and i did something that's completely insane i wrote a book <laughs> so i did the old guard way so it's seven lectures seven weeks live lectures every monday where i i wrote a new lecture for every single week so i'm exa- i'm exhausted now uh but i did it you know really the, the i wanted to do it in a way that you're, you're, you're not at university you no longer not even if you're a, a full professor with everything right you know you're just you're supposed to teach secondary literature the same course every year you're not supposed to write something original so I wrote a book on Nietzsche and taught that.
0: It is an excellent um, method actually. It's, I like that I like that you did it that way
1: it it's it is and then then you have the lecture that's the you know that's for the lecturer, and that's going to be similar with our course. there are the set lectures, but then the seminars. so I had seminars every Saturday. Um, a group of you know students meet and they discuss the readings and they Generate their own reading of the course. So yeah. my, my lectures are you know they're important because they give some guideline, but then the seminars are really there to for for students to share, and that's why we have the breakout groups, etc. That's
0: right. So something that I think both of you, both you and I, have learned from the initial course that you and I did on Deleuze and Heidegger a year ago. That was that was my first effort to do a serious online course really properly, and it was. On the success of that and on the quality of it that I was really like, oh, this is going to be huge. Like this whole new thing of doing online courses, doing genuine high level philosophy courses, just independently with interested people on the internet. I was immediately convinced after doing that first round of Deleuze versus Heidegger with you that uh, this this is going to be big and I'm going to keep doing this because it's, yeah. it's just so real and everyone seemed to enjoy it so uh, genuinely that... Yeah. Um, the one, the one thing that I kind of did between our first course and the other courses that I did since then, just like you said, you've been doing courses since then. I've also been doing courses since then. Uh, not, not as many as you, um, but the one that I did with Nina on Bataille, one thing that I tried to do with that course, um, that in large part, I kind of learned from the first course was I really tried to lean more and, and focus more on encouraging and supporting the participants in the course to produce their own work. Uh, because something that I learned in the first course with you, Johannes, is that um, the people who join our cars- our courses are really quite uh, capable and really quite enthusiastic. They have real ideas. Almost everyone in the course had their own real ideas and they were interested in developing them. And that's something that I'm really interested in doing more and more. And so for this second round of Deleuze versus Heidegger, um, since the year that's passed, I've built all of these structures that really give people way more, um, support essentially. And, and I can go into that if people ever want to, you know, ask me questions or whatever, but that's essentially what IndieThinkers has been. And I've been building that full time pretty much since I launched, uh, our first cohort of Deleuze versus Heidegger and IndieThinkers is pretty much all about these stru- different structures and systems that by being a member of the course, you also get access to. And it's all about pretty much enabling you and empowering you to produce your own work better, faster, more effectively, and to actually even start building audiences around it. So to me, that's the most exciting kind of next step of this online course game that uh, people like you and I are uh, exploring as, as philosophers or scientists or whatever the case might be. So yeah, that's what I'm kind of most pumped on moving forward and, and including for our course that starts on November 22nd. So um, are there other are particular takeaways for you since the last time we taught the course?
1: It's incredible. So there's a couple of people who um, took that course and I met them in the Deleuze Heidegger course, and they've been with me till the end. So they've taken every single course since. Oh, wow. And um, what, so what came out of the Islandless dignity course is that I invited them to give talks, the pro seminar, what we did also spontaneously. So that's something else we're offering. You offer this, I offer this with every single course is if you want to, you can give a talk. Um, so there will be some guidance up to this, how to, you know, do this, et cetera. Um, but w- when we had the um the presentations for that Idol course, I just th- thought you know these essays are so good, So we published them as a booklet. and oh, nice. then, uh, with with Halkion with my my guild, as I call it, it's um, uh, it's a a conglomerate to say a spontaneous order, sometimes people coming together doing things, uh, and there's a forum as well where the people exchange their ideas. But there are people that are, you know, there's, there's, one, there's someone in particular who's so incredibly driven, knowledgeable, um, wanted to do a PhD and might not do it, but I said at some point, just don't do the PhD, but do the research instead. Do the research instead. You don't, do you need the structure? Do you, what do you need the PhD for? If you have platforms like yours, like mine, where you can meet the people, and you you can you can get feedback, you can get comments, you stay in touch. That's what people. Need. And it's it's less lonely. That's what I've noticed too, right? For them, uh, and it's also less lonely for me, to be honest. If you're able to write and then read it, you have to actually make sure that you get across what you're trying to say. Um, it's so it's 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 a wonderful way of, of building. And I've never th- thought it would be possible. This kind of an online community would actually be so um, reinforcing and helpful and guiding. Um, in these projects and actually, you know, you actually sit down, you know, I want to write a book on Nietzsche. Well, yeah. Are you going to do it? Well, you do it if you actually, um, have the, the
0: listeners for it and. um, And the commitment, like if you have to show up and present something, (laughs) then you, you know, you're going to be writing it because you have to,
1: you have to show up. And something that came out of the Lewis course is that a lot of people became very active, right? Um, and stay very active. So just one of one of the most obvious things is, of course, a reading group. So that's something that's come out of it. Um, is that people started a reading group, um, and and someone else got involved with the stoa, etc. And we what we do in Halkion is people just start reading groups. We've got a reading group on Being in Time, one on Nishitani, the Japanese philosopher who read Heidegger, um, one on Iqbal, who's a Muslim philosopher who read a lot of Nietzsche. Uh, and they meet, I think, once a week to discuss. And one of the things also is what what comes out of these courses. Someone messaged me after the Heidegger course who had taken both courses, Heidegger and the Idleness course. Uh, he said he found his lifetime writing project with this. So this is something that I think really comes out of it is, is, as you said before, you know, start writing. Um, if 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 this is what your drive is, or if for others it might be YouTube videos, for others it might just be uh, a Twitter account or something. Um, but uh, it it doesn't have to be within the confines of the sort of structures right you, you don't need to do an m a in the u k which is ten thousand pounds to to do
0: what literally to get a piece of paper sorry I mean, in some sense, this brings us right to the the problem of technological enslavement, and people yeah. might not necessarily think of the way that institutions capture us as a technological problem per se, but. Yeah. On some level, it is like, I mean, maybe you want to take this one up because Heidegger, something that we learned from Heidegger is that if you think about technology and the problem that technology poses in terms of if your mental picture of that problem is, you know, you're thinking of, uh, you know, hammers and computers and these uh, kind yeah. of technological devices as the representatives of, of the technological problem or how technology threatens to enslave us, you're you're not understanding it. That's really not the issue that that's a kind of there's a lot to be said there, but that's that's a kind of red herring that technology is actually uh, it has to do with um, how the world is inframed, if you will. Do you want to maybe um, expand a little bit on how the 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 threat of technological enslavement is much more uh, general, but also much more severe? The the threat is, yeah. what's that is much higher than people realize. Do you want to maybe talk about that a little bit from a Heideggerian perspective? So I don't want to get into
1: so to quote Heidegger, "Hier wird nicht We don't Heideggerianize here. He once said to one of his students who sounded too much like him. Uh, okay. So I don't want to get too uh, 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 too much in the lingo, but this is a very important point that Justin that you just raised, um, which is that we think of um, you know we, we enslavement we imagine something like literal enslavement. Uh, like, uh, it's visible, right? We've got chains, et cetera. And I think to some degree with the inter- interesting language, right, that what the virus currently is doing is kind of almost only just revealing what's all what's already been there. And this is, uh, it's deterritorializing, etc. et cetera. So, uh, however, and interesting also that Deleuze speaks of viruses, right? But in terms of Heidegger, what Heidegger is it's a, in the most famous essay, which is the question concerning technology, the Frage nach der Technik. He, um, when he speaks of Gestell, which in English often is either in framing or positionality, let's stay within framing for now. There's a way in which the, what he's trying to describe is actually nothing technological per se. So he's not trying to say that, you know, there's, there's this technological tool and that's fine because it's a hammer and it's ancient and that's fine and the atomic bomb uh, is evil because it's new and I like staying at my hut as so often that the, the prejudice against Heidegger goes. He's trying to say much something much more subtle, much more profound, and unfortunately also much more dangerous, which is that the way in which the world, or in his language, the way in which beings now appear is always already and framed in su- such a way that everything stands ready as a standing reserve or, or standing resource perhaps also that's perfectly adjusted to its position and waiting, just waiting to be exploited so that nothing is allowed to linger or arise or be, or come into its own, in its own way. We don't let beings be. We don't let things be of their own accord. So his example is, for example, right, the, the Rhine. He says that the, the Rhine is ordered to be a source of energy um, for, uh, for, the, um, for the turbines of the, uh, the water uh, electricity um, plant. And, but the Rhine is also ordered at the same time by the industry of tourism to stand ready as an object of exploitation for enjoyment. The Rhine itself, however, is never s- showing itself, as it were, right? It's, everything's ordered, so it, it becomes very subtle. So it, it could even be, and, and now, however, it's become so massive that it's much, it's, it's way easier to show. This one of the examples I, I used sometimes, or I use sometimes is the romantic weekend. So we can, b- before, when, when, you know, when travel was still a thing, um, you, you could order a book, and it's a very weird example and a bit silly, but you could book a romantic weekend and that's you're formatting something before it occurs. Right. And, it, and it, I know it's, it sounds silly, but the, it's everything is pre formatted. We're pre formatting and, and to come back to the university. How often when we're honest to ourselves and me included, do we go to a university because of its label? not because of any of the content that we're going to read or any of the thinking, but no, no, you go to Harvard or Warwick in my case, or anything else, um, that has a certain label, a certain standing, a certain status. And in the UK, it's very obvious because here they speak officially of the student experience, which is one of the ways the universities are ranked. And you remember this from your time here. So it's nothing is in its origin as it were, but you're already, so there's a capture to speak in Deleuze's language, um, by an institution to be drawn in by it and that's already a form of enslavement as it were because you're not, you're not there for anything significant beyond um, the, the pre-formatted or the label or the, 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 the institutional sort of uh, uh, status that comes with it. But so th- that's the weird thing about Heidegger is that we actually have to move away from technological tools which are just expressions of this and then move towards how we see the world, and that's where that's when we begin to see how we see the world is also the way. And this is what the course will be about. And in in, in, on, the, on the Heidegger side, is this is where an escape becomes possible, is by okay. seeing what for what it is.
0: Okay, great. That's great. So I can chime in a little bit here on the delusian front because something you noticed before that's really interesting is that. Deleuze does talk about viruses, uh, especially in uh, the Postscript on Societies of Control, which is one of the texts that we pay very close attention to in the course. And what's interesting about this concept of the virus is that, well, first of all, we are living through this global catastrophe that is essentially defined by a virus. That's fascinating. And uh, but because what Deleuze, Deleuze actually is interested in viruses as a kind of model for how machines, kind of machinic dynamics of escape or liberation can unfold. So what's what one interesting hypothesis that we might want to explore, and obviously what we end up talking about is mostly a function of what the participants are thinking. Uh, but one thing I could see being very likely a topic of of great interest to explore is we are in this context right now where there are essentially viruses in competition. Because you can think of memes as essentially viruses. I mean, mimetic, the nature of mimetic information spread is essentially similar or homologous to the, the, the spread of something like coronavirus. And you can actually understand the contemporary digital context as this environment where there are all of these essentially competing viruses. And on some level, you can put um, actual physical viruses, you know, real threats to, to, to our bodies, such as the coronavirus, you can, in some sense, put them on the same plane with uh, various mimetic enterprises, right? When you think about all of the kind of conspiracy theories going on, and when you think about, uh, especially in the co- in the wake of the the twenty twenty American election, viral viral phenomenon is perhaps one of the most important and pressing types of phenomena of this particular moment, and I just find something very very. Uh, attractive and and pregnant there, and given that it just so happens, the virus as a kind of model of spread, whether it be of sickness or information or ideas or beliefs, uh, is so salient right now. And it is literally one of the key lines in the in Deleuze's postscript on society's control, where he talks about viruses as being one of the most important models for how we think about dealing with technological societies. So I, I personally am very excited to think about that a little bit more and look into that and and, and perhaps find, I think, maybe some really, really important treasures of, of insight for navigating what we're going through right now.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, that's why the course is so weirdly prescient um, that we started it here. There's one line though that always comes up in Heidegger when he writes on technology. And he actually has an entire essay entitled The Danger, Die Gefahr. And that one or actually two lines are from Hölderlin that he always comes back to, which I also quote in the lecture course. Wo die Gefahr ist, wächst das Rettende auch. But where danger is, grows the saving grace also, which is from Hölderlin's hymn of the um, Patmos. But one of the things I noticed when I, Listen again in preparation for this to one of your lectures on the machines of liberation. I think it was the way in which, and this made me rethink because we we entitled the course the first time round Deleuze versus Heidegger, not Deleuze and Heidegger. And that was, I think, I want. I know oh, Heidegger much better, but I think um, I think that now I really think, and I want to make say this again, is that perhaps Deleuze allows us to. Because Deleuze writes much later, right? Heidegger already Heidegger speaks of cybernetics, etc. Uh, but for for Deleuze, it's already much clearer what this means and how this is extremely accelerating. Maybe in ways that Heidegger couldn't even foresee. Um, so, if anyone's interested, Heidegger speaks of uh, cybernetics in a text entitled "The End of Philosophy and the Task of Thinking," as he explicitly mentions the word Kubernetes cybernetics. And it what's interesting is, is is the notion of war in Deleuze, and you can say a bit about this, but for Heidegger, Heidegger is a Heraclitian. So Heraclitus, as he says, is always behind him when he writes, and Heraclitus said, Polymos pater um, which is Greek and means war is the father of everything. So it's not necessarily the state um, that reaches war, but war, you could almost say, this is simplifying it, but War is like a primordial process that's always ongoing. And and I think that's that's something I didn't really pick up on last time. And I think here is something that, almost a university, right, uh, that comes in where we can see. But what, then again, though, you know, war for Heraclitus always brings order. It, it brings hierarchy, et cetera. Maybe there's a difference here with, with Deleuze. But where Heidegger and Deleuze, I think, are really quite near here, is what how you pointed it out, is that there is something about power, and Heidegger thinks about technology in terms of the will to will, a will that wills itself continuously, so and that must will itself ever more at an ever greater expense of power. And power is always wants more power, but it is at the same time it requires such an immense focus to increase one's power the entire time, that it's questionable whether this apparent increase in power is an actual increase in power, and where perhaps within this there can be lines of flight opening up. Because as of necessity, this is something you learn from Heidegger, any opening reveals a concealment, if you think in terms of concealment also. So our focus of course, always goes to that which is immediately there, or seemingly immediately there and present. But in anything that discloses itself, there is concealment already active. And by focusing a bit more on what may be concealed, et
0: etc, that again opens up a way
1: of escaping.
0: Yeah, there I mean, there's so much here. it's, it's so it's so exhilarating. I, I am almost like falling out of my seat with... Ways that I could expand on what you just said—it's so rich. And what's interesting and exciting is that we 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 really didn't even talk about any of these specific themes in the first course. Like this is all new. For, this is all new. Um, I think I think the 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 task of um, excavating the commonalities, but also divergences between Heidegger and Deleuze. I mean, we've only scratched the surface. It's it's so exhilarating because you know what else you got me thinking is that. You, you mentioned uh, Heraclitus. You might not, you may or may not know that uh, Deleuze cites Heraclitus quite a lot in the in the larger uh, course of his of his career. Not a ton in the books that we read for the course, although we can definitely bring in some some additional readings and some additional passages for sure. Um, and you were just talking about concealing and unconcealing, and one of Heraclitus's most interesting lines is this idea that nature loves to hide. I find that extremely enigmatic. And in fact, Nick Land in his recent book on Bitcoin, which is really just quite uh, fascinating, uh, I think, really important text, actually, which still uh, remains quite underappreciated. But that's one of the main themes of that book about Bitcoin, Uh, this this idea that that nature loves to hide. I mean, first of all, what does that even mean? It's extremely uh, it's extremely enigmatic. But you see this a bit in. Uh, Deleuze and Heidegger. In Heidegger, perhaps it's a little bit more well known, right? Because of this uh concept of of concealing and unconcealing, um, and this kind of uh perspective on truth that Heidegger has and is well known for. But you also see it manifest in Deleuze's philosophy, also. And I would summarize it something like as follows the standing reserve that you talk about, this kind of technological and framing that Heidegger discusses, where without even knowing it, we are being standardized and uh, and and made into a kind of object for exploitation to a degree that really threatens to possibly close off from us um yeah. the the, uh, the the essence of 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 true free human life that we yeah. we really run the risk according to heidegger we really run the run the risk of of losing access to something fundamental and primordial about what it what we even are as human beings yeah. and so that's one of the things that's at stake for heidegger and What's interesting about Deleuze's approach to technology is that you see a very similar concern. Deleuze is equally interested in and concerned by this threat. I believe, for for Deleuze, you you are inclined to think about it more in terms of of of, of technological capture. I think is the is the phrase, that's kind of the watchword in Deleuze's work. This this term capture. There are of course whole sections yeah. um, in his famous works with Guattari on on apparatuses of capture. So what he's interested though in is essentially what we're talking about with this threat of inframing and becoming standing reserve according to Heidegger. And for Deleuze I think similarly um as it is for for Heidegger although quite different for sure we don't want to we don't want to overly conflate things. The essence of of Deleuze's wager about how to escape this kind of what Heidegger would call inframing or this this threat of becoming pure standing reserve. For Deleuze there is also this strategy of hiding but not hiding it's very peculiar it needs it needs to be developed and worked out um it's it's quite fascinating it's a, it's about as enigmatic as the heracletian slogan that that nature loves to hide so i mean i could i could, I could lecture on this for but i don't want to make this uh, i don't i don't want to you know make this boring for you so uh, why don't, don't you pick up on that and then i can i can go also again
1: it's a heraclitus says in ancient greek he says, physis kryptistai phile. A very, a very specific translation would be physis, which we sometimes translate as nature, likes to hide herself, but in not herself as an object, but in something else. It's a medial grammatical form. So it's not just nature likes to hide herself, but nature likes to hide herself in something else. It never actually shows up. You never, you you don't see it fully. It's in something else as it were. And one of the ways in which, uh, so that's, you know, these are, because I think when we speak of escape, um, we could perhaps um, conflate this and think that we're looking for some golden gate through which to walk towards a utopian. I think neither Heidegger nor Deleuze is about this, but philosophy is at its core, since Plato, always the question how to escape the cave. And what's strange about the cave is when you read the cave allegory or analogy, depending how you think of it, it, it you, when we, no one stays outside the cave. It's actually in the minute that you return into the cave that you begin to see what the cave, what the shadows are the shadows are as shadows, thanks to the light of the sun. You didn't see that before. So the return into the cave is part of, um, of gaining freedom. And I think we have a bit of a, a reductive understanding of freedom is almost like just a, you know, a certain givenness and then we can make free choices, etc. But But freedom is with Hegel it is the principle of history and it has to be fought out in history and that is exactly this movement of having to leave the cave and returning into it and also having to deal with concealment and shadows and uh, the un and non-availability but these provide as it were ways of seeing something that remains covered over and perhaps sometimes even wants to remain covered over and um, in going through this and also it, it always has to, it always has to do with 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 speaking in a different language. One of the things that, uh, and I think you point this out as well, is for for Deleuze, it's very important to be illegible, but not on purpose, as it were. So, you know, I'm just going to write nonsense, Um, but illegible in the sense that you are so in your own projects and way of thinking that it cannot be easily captured. It cannot be turned into just, you know, a neat bullet point on Wikipedia. As people right. who, are, who are familiar with Heidegger will know, um, his language is quite unusual too. And the reason why he turns to poetry and poetic thinking and then also poetic existence is precisely because in poetry he still sees the possibility to actually to open up a certain way of thinking that reveals other ways of which, which aren't. So it's not, we're not looking for this one big curtain to pull back. Um, for ways in which you can articulate yourself um, so that you begin to see other areas, regions that were hitherto hidden. And then another way of existing becomes uh, slowly possible. And there's a nice, I'm going to stop here. There's a nice, uh, very interesting uh, uh, old English uh, uh, idiom, a proverb, which is after word comes weird. Hmm.
0: Interesting. That was brilliant. I want to pick up on one of the things you said, which is this idea of illegibility in Deleuze or imperceptibility in Deleuze. Because, the, I mean, the way that I would explain to people the, the basic gist of the Deleuzian philosophy of escape or, or the Deleuzian philosophy of exit from technological enslavement is something like as follows. Because apparatuses of capture are constantly trying to standardize us and integrate us into the coordinates of that machine, what one might even call the mega machine, which is a word from Lewis Mumford, who Deleuze is quite fond of and cites quite a lot. The mega machine is constantly trying to turn us into what Heidegger would call standing reserve. And that's through a process of making us legible. So we might think one thing and we might say one thing and the mega machine will... We'll twist that a little bit to make it fit the system, essentially, to make it legible. So we might actually be trying to get at something quite original, something truly novel, something that maybe the world has never heard before. But as soon as you put that word out into the mega machine, the apparatuses of capture, it's going to pervert that and twist it into whatever within its grids of legibility makes the most sense for its own operation. So your ideas, your energy, your whatever you're trying to create or bring into the world is constantly being twisted and seduced and and morphed and kind of sucked in by the mega machine. And I would say the telltale signs of that are essentially what we think of as capitalistic kind of incentive pressures. Right. Um, When you put an idea out into the world, right, you are if it's of any interest to anyone, you're immediately confronted with essentially temptations and seductions uh, to to perhaps not go straight down that line of flight that you're really interested in, which you're, which actually makes your ideas interesting and unique and worthwhile, but actually turn that line of flight a little bit to make it fit in a little bit better with the coordinates that are legible to this mega machine, uh, to use Lewis Mumford's phrase, but what we might also say this will-to-will in the Heideggerian phrase. So we are constantly being sucked into this will-to-will um, and tempted away from our true lines of flight. And so the real question when it comes to escaping technology in the delusional register is how to stay on that line of flight without getting sucked into the to the mega machine to the to the apparatuses of capture and i think his essential teaching if i had to boil it down you know in a very uh, kind of simplistic cartoonish way the essential teaching is to essentially go so far off the grid of legibility kind of start in a way that is Uh, in principle, so illegible to the standard kind of operating procedures that the mega machine can't even get its hooks in essentially. And then it becomes a question of what are the conditions required for independent thinkers or creators? And because this is ultimately about creativity. And I think this is something we should also talk on before before we wrap this up at some point today, because for both Heidegger and Deleuze, they both seem to believe that the the avenue for escaping technological enslavement has something to do with art, with whether it's poetic existence in the Heideggerian Register or novelty and creativity in the Deleuzian Register. So we should talk about that a little bit more. But basically, the, the real question for us as philosophers and you know, for the types of people who are interested in these questions, not as an abstract academic exercise, but I assume the people listening to my content and your content, like we're all just actually thinking people trying to solve real problems that confront us. And we feel, and we see the problems and the threats of technological enslavement every day. We feel it as a threat to our actual livelihood as thinking free human beings. And so when it when you think about it in that way, where it's not just an academic exercise, it becomes a question of what specifically do we need to do? What types of conditions do we need in place? Do, do we need to cultivate to allow our thought and our creativity to be sufficiently off the grid of the kind of systemic uh, apparatus of capture's grid of legibility? And I think that's something I, I could say much more on, but uh, you know, I want to leave it at that for now.
1: Okay. So maybe we'll talk more at the launch event also about that on the 22nd. On the first day, sure, yeah. So um, maybe you can mention what this is like for people who don't know at some point. Um, but here, I mean, Heidegger ends his, so there's many essays by him and in, in, in texts on technology, but the, the most notorious one is the question concerning technology. And here he says the word technik in German, and also technology, of course, in, in English or technics comes from the Greek word techne, and techne heh, also means art. So Heidegger does see in in techne also another way of disclosing the world that's more in line with a human ethos and not um, a world of machines. And something else that goes a bit beyond, maybe it's also in line with with the Lewis and Heidegger, but you know, and anything that 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 happens, you know. I, I mentioned that the other, the first live stream we did this. that dialectics is to a certain degree in Heidegger says this explicitly. He says dialectics is now the steering method of of the planet, uh, and you make of that what you will. But any any um, any dialectics that's opened up. And always look for those dialectics because they're quite obvious, right? You vote for this party, you vote for that party, you're pro this, you're against this. It's quite obvious how this works. Um, and we all like to have our opinions, right? And be very, very righteous about them, self-righteous. But every dialectic that's opened up purposefully opens up a myriad of dialectics that cannot be controlled. And at the same time, um, something like a lockdown, for example, um, leads to... Leads to turnings that are unforeseen. I had people in my courses who remembered that 25 years ago, they read Heidegger and this would, they would never have remembered this in the, in, in the, in the workings of the will to will of the everyday, but being at home, working from home, having w- weirdly more capture at home from work, right? Cause you're more surveilled um, right. you're at home, but at the same time, you're also at home with your kids and you begin to remember because there's a bit of a, all of a sudden, all of, all of the, the, much of the, the inframing um, <laughs> that we're living through uh, and that we have to face every day, we just leave the house, that collapsed. Um, and it's not probably possible to keep up this level of machinery um, only in the digital. And it, it, it helped people, and I've seen it this year, to remember to come back to themselves to a certain degree. So you have here I'm trying to give maybe a strange example but you had here at, at one sort of a an increase in in capture and surveillance at home but at the same time there was something else opening up and it's always that which is unexpected. You d- don't don't lean into that where where all the rage is going right now, right? This guy won, this guy lost, etc. I'm, for, I'm pro this, I'm against this. It's all the rage is pouring into this. No, lean into that where it actually you yourself right now is you're being pulled towards really, right? And this is probably something else entirely. Um, and it might be writing something as simple as a one line, a two line poem, I mean, sorry. Or, but it, it's it's more now than ever before about becoming creative. Nietzsche says this also, right? It's It's the artist that will that's closest to the free spirit that's closest to the Ubermensch uh, to this other new arrival of a new human being uh, or a new time. Um, And I think the the, it's and also the, the more something, you know, the more control there is and the more algorithmic control, the greater the outliers like any mathematician can tell you that how the more you con- the more you set up for control actually the the weirder the the results are
0: that are skewed that's uh, right that's right the more volatile the system as a whole becomes the more you yeah. try to impose control that's right yeah so there's also something really interesting in what you're saying in that you're basically all, also talking about how would, what we're living through right now in this kind of pandemic lockdown context and all of the ways it's 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 messing with our minds in, in counterintuitive ways. Like, as you said, wh- you know, all of a sudden, many of us no longer have to go into the office and we get yeah. to work from home, which is something that most people would have told you is highly desirable. And yet a lot of people find now they're working from home, their life is all the more captured by work. And so there are all these kind of weird counterintuitive findings uh, from the new form of, lock- of lockdown life and work from home life but it's it seems to be a embodiment of this idea that in the supreme danger is the saving power also because it's like as our systems and our societies become increasingly controlled by kind of top down technological rationalities like okay there's a global pandemic we need to act at the central level to make sure people don't go to work that people don't you know go out in public without wearing a mask right everyone has to wear a mask these these sort of um requisite centralized control structures that are arising to deal with increasing global threats uh that have this kind of viral nature is at the same time making us realize the stakes of what's what's really involved here it's making us so it's like as control gets worse we become more aware and we become more conscious of how these overarching systems actually impose control on us and that you know is To say Mm -hmm. in a Delosian way, what you said previously in the Heideggerian way of in the supreme danger is the saving power also. So, that I mean, this is is actually one of the reasons I should share this with people. Like, this is kind of one of the reasons we decided to do this course sooner than later. We were originally going to do this course in January. Uh, That was the original plan. Uh, But we talked about it. And I think we both were just kind of like maybe this this should really happen now i think it's actually very it's very uh needed yeah. i mean i think you can actually create online courses in a way that is designed to produce free spirits like on some kind of maximally ambitious yes. level that is what i think i'm most interested in is just creating structures and systems where people can kind of repurpose technology because of course it's done on the internet right it's 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 done through these computers and these screens there's no there's no getting around that at least for for the moment uh, but I do believe just fundamentally there is a way of hacking these systems to actually use these technological devices to systematically produce free spirit.
1: So, this is very important. First of all, what Nietzsche says about the free spirit is that the, the highest art that the free spirit has to learn, he says it in Beyond Good and Evil, is to learn how to preserve oneself. To say yes, to be able to say yes always only in connection with being able to say no, to turn away, to turn away. That's the first very simple task, just turn away. Um, there's something else also when it comes to you know um, control and or actually with, with this entire pandemic and lockdown, et etc. Nietzsche speaks at the end of his wake life. This is in 1887 or so. In a notebook that's only published in German, he speaks of an unheimliches Rederwerk, an enormous or uncanny or really outlandish, terrifying wheelwork with ever more finely adapted wheels. And he also speaks of the uh, total economic management of the earth that's inevitably in store for us today. This is a direct quote from Nietzsche. So Nietzsche sees this coming and others at the time too. And someone like Heidegger uh, sees the total inframing of the world and a, and a complete incapacity to have any original experience almost almost right nearly almost. it's always just ever almost but first you have to point to it but now I think it's it's becoming visible it's it's getting it's becoming obvious so here's what's strange right you could almost put this in biblical terms when the serpent moves it has to show itself so um, one's control becomes really visible. It 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 is it it must show itself, and once it shows itself, though it's already moving. So the reason why Heidegger can see the Gestell, this total setting, artificial setting up of the world, which then, uh, with someone like Baudrillard, will call the, the simulacrum, etc. Right? Um, Heidegger can see this because it's already fracturing. I believe that this is what's, and this is why he then goes into the fourfold and says there is another possibility of world of mortals and earth sky and divinities which is also possible which is possible at the same time though so it's not a promised utopia at the end of a of a road it's something that can occur now and it's um and it's it it, it but it has to do with how we respond to it and how we comport ourselves in what currently is And one of the things, um, so you mentioned, so we're using, obviously, we're live right now, and we're going to upload this, and then seminars will be over Zoom, et cetera. Um, But no one ever said, turn off your everything. And you mentioned Ted Kaczynski, or you mentioned him in the lecture course last time. Um, What does he do? I mean, he goes into a hut, and all he thinks about is... Is the system right that he wants to fight, and actually he's in opposition to it so much that he becomes very violent. That's not that's not appropriate. Um, but in, instead, um, look a very personal example. If and for you, I'm not going to speak for you, but it's probably similar because you were in academia. Um, to do this, so we're always so when you people don't know this, but when you apply for an academic position, even in philosophy, you're the victim of numbers. You're a victim you're made a victim of, of impact factors, right? So you have to publish papers which are completely legible, which everybody already agrees with. So literally, when you want to get published in a so-called really high standard journal, here's how to do, it. so anyone who wants to do this, here's the trick, write the following. Say, let's say it's on Immanuel Kant. Kant says this on the one hand, on the other hand, but also. So you spend 25 pages saying nothing. You never quote Kant himself because that's too difficult. So you only go to the secondary literature. You please everyone who sits on the board of the editorials. Then you might get published. That ramps up, that puts up your impact factor. And then you get at some point when your back is already broken, and you are done with, you get a job. So you've completely killed yourself for absolutely nothing. Um, and you've made yourself a victim of, these, of, of, of all these parameters that you're not even in charge of. Or you do something what Justin does, or what I do, and you're still, of course, operating within the same, with the same technologies, but you're taking more charge. You're taking, actually you take action because you build your own structures um, and you're not completely victimized by any kind of impact factors or numbers, etc. Because it's yeah. just literally about tr- building something for your own um, and that, that mushrooms, right?
0: Necessarily. Yeah. Absolutely well mushrooms that's an interesting that's an interesting phrase you just used because there's a kind of viral uh model there you know mushrooming is a kind of exponential takeoff that has something to do with viral so we can we can maybe return to that but um i loved everything you just said and i completely agree one thing i would only add is that i do believe we can identify in authors such as delos pretty concrete tips and tricks. I mean, I hate to reduce a kind of profound, nuanced uh, philosopher to, you know, quote unquote, tips and tricks. But as thinking maneuvering individuals, we do actually need to create uh, practices and and frameworks and rules of thumb for how we actually learn from this knowledge in a way that matters to us. And I do think that you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, the core requirement is to turn away and then create and to just go all in on that um yeah. but i do think that there are many pitfalls along the way there are cool. many ways in which what you fall off the line of flight and i think one of the most interesting and attractive uh values to Deleuzian's, uh, you know to the to the delusian philosophy is that there's a lot of different pointers in there that i think remain to be explored that most people don't really appreciate about how to avoid those pitfalls and how to stay on that line of flight and for what it's worth everything i'm building i mean i'm sure you probably uh, would would relate to this in some degree also johannes At the end of the day, everything I'm trying to build in terms of structures and systems on the internet is trying to follow through and actually creating the systems that can reliably produce free spirits on their own lines of flight and to, to, to use the tactics that we know kind of work and to systematically try to avoid the pitfalls that we know are always threatening. And I do think there is a bit of a social science to that. I really do think you can do that. And I see the world right now as this kind of race between those who are trying to build systems to produce free spirits racing against the apparatuses of control. And, and in some ways, both are accelerating and both are competing. And the question is, who's going to be able to create the superior viruses that that are able to um, comp- out-compete the others, I think. And
1: um, just very briefly in the related topic, there will be naysayers to any of this, right? Who would say all you do is just, you create another, you know, you just become enslaved by another machine that you're building, et cetera. Right. I, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, because absolutely but, not. I mean, f- first, you know, build something comparable and then we talk. Um, second, it's, I can guarantee this from my own experience. And also just writing the course. I remember emailing this to you saying, you yeah, know, this is exhilarating because I'm just now writing myself free. I had just written a book on Heidegger and you have to write it in a certain way. You still get to say more or less what it is you want to say, but you have to phrase it in a certain way that it's publishable. And this process just of writing, getting into this, uh, atmosphere almost of writing in a way that it, this is what I need to say now. So that I have said it, that's that's liberating in a way that um, if you don't forget this, you know, obviously you, we all have to pay our bills, etc., and all those other things. But um, you, you, you're not captured as easily by that, because that will be more important than adapting to um, um, the inframings of the operations of of of, of, gestale, of of technological enslavement. So there are ways of, of doing this. I'm, I'm so, and I would never uh, uh, think that uh, it's, you, you know, you're always just creating some, something else. It's just going to be just as, um, uh, just as much as a slave master. I don't think yeah, so.
0: I, I'm really glad you said that. And someone mentioned this in the comments. It, it's a, oh, it's yeah. a really good question. It's a really good point, right? Um, by defecting from the apparatuses of capture and trying to create viable, sustainable systems that actually produce truly free spirits. There is absolutely a serious risk of essentially just replicating the rotten structures that we're defecting from. Absolutely. And in fact, I can remember this was something that came up a lot in the course when we did the first live uh, cohort of, of of seminar sessions. We were talking about this a lot because one of the key themes, the way we talked about it the first time in the in the in the group discussions, and this is always unpredictable. It always kind of depends on who's there and what people are thinking. Um, yeah. but I remember a term that came up a lot was this concept of instrumental rationality which is an idea uh, originally out of Max Weber uh, is, is analyzed quite a lot and quite impressively by the, the, the Frankfurt school, but it also is quite useful. I think for understanding some of the commonalities between Deleuze and Heidegger, at least that's something that emerged to me anyway, in the course of the discussion seminars in our first cohort. And, um, so we talked a lot about this, how instrumental rationality is essentially one of the watchwords for what enslaves us and 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 how we're constantly being kind of seduced into into structures that uh come to oppress us. And one of the things we I remember us talking as a group, it was fascinating. At the very end, we kind of really confronted as a group. We were like, Well, what does it mean for a course like this? Right. Because we build the, you know, you and I built this structure on the internet. It's a technological structure, we charge money for it to operate. Um, What does it mean? Because are we, you know, we really tried to analyze this. Like, are we really replicating um, the instrumental rationality we're trying to escape from? And I remember one of the most impressive and satisfying rewards of that course. one One of the novel results of that group research we conducted through that course that still sticks with me, that has changed the way I think, is that something we all saw, I think, and we generally agreed on was that in order to escape instrumental rationality and apparatuses of capture, one needs to create systems that harness it to some degree, but in a way that is more thoughtful and intelligent and prepared such that it does not come to capture. So yes, you do have to create these negentropic structures, these these rationalistic, instrumentally rational structures in order to escape instrumental rationality. The only question is, can you add additional conditions or features or can consciousness and awareness itself be one of those features that if you follow through on it and you stay on that group line of flight you are able to systematically avoid the ultimate oppression and exploitation that instrumental rationality generally leads us down and i think we all came to the conclusion that that's what we were figuring Sorry. out and that and that there is a way to keep that line of flight open even though yeah. you have to build an instrumental rationality system in order to create these these structures and make them work
1: what do you think yeah. Yeah, because we flipped it. it we, we flipped it. So, we, you know, obviously, again, everything has a cost. Um, there is a cost to even just the machine I'm using uh, to talk to you um, and the bills to pay to turn on electricity, et cetera. Uh, and, and any kind of commune, right? Any kind of hippie commune, at some point, if they get serious, actually turns into a business. Uh, and they they sell their their organic bread and produce, et cetera. Uh, and they are very good at bookkeeping if they want to keep going. Um, but what we did, and we realized this during the course, uh, because it was yeah you know, a bit of a pilot for both of us, is that by using instrumental rationality, just in terms of how it's being uh, presented, et cetera, actually in the seminars, it flips around and it's completely gone. And that's a very different experience compared to, I speak for myself now, um, teaching at the, uh, in academia in the UK where officially it's not an instrumental. Um, but we are confronted with students who are very often quite fearful for their future because they're getting into a huge amount of debt, even in the UK, not just in the U S and it's never free the, the classroom was never actually free. Cause there's a lot of anxieties, et cetera. but there's kind of an open discourse and learning together as a group. I would think it was generated because we went through this process and then flipped it. And it just came about spontaneously also, which is fantastic.
0: So I think, yeah, I remember one of the insights that came up in that discussion as a group was that one of the things that I think made that, that is required to build this kind of instrumentally rational system sufficiently that it works and it operates and it actually does. Um, deliver what it intends to deliver, to, to build any system that, that functions properly and stands up like a bridge stands up and delivers what it's supposed to deliver requires a certain amount of instrumental rationality. But if cool. I recall correctly, one of the most interesting insights I got from that discussion was, I think one of the key conditions that makes a creative project uh, able to escape At the end of the day, the problems or the threats of instrumental rationality that allows you to exit instrumental rationality, perhaps at the end, as you were, perhaps it's a system that you kind of go through in a somewhat instrumentally rational way. But the point or the goal is to when it when it outputs you of the system, when you leave the system, um, your 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 net amount of instrumental rationality oppression is decreased, right? Something like that is my mental model of it. And if I recall correctly, something I learned was that one of the key conditions is that you're not selling the system on claims of instrumental rationality. That was something I really took away from it because you and I have always been very, I think, precise and insistent that when we create a course, we are not selling you something that is going to get you a job. We are not selling you something that is going to, um, you know, make you money. Now there is an interesting, fascinating dynamic here where, the more you liberate yourself from instrumental rationality, the more you will find you are capable of doing valuable things that people will possibly actually value you more for and want to pay you for that. That's a weird paradox, but interestingly, you only get that payoff in the long run. If you truly and genuinely commit to doing truth seeking work for no payoff whatsoever. And so that I think is one of the keys um, that we kind of discovered. I mean, not to toot our own horn or anything, but like this, we, 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 we figured this stuff out and thought about this stuff. And I remember it to this day because we confronted it squarely as as thinking honest people in the course. And I do think that there is a real formula there. There is a real uh, insight there about how to create systems that can systematically increase free spiritedness or, or output free spirits, even though you have to bite the bullet of building instrumentally rational systems in some level.
1: The Apollonian meets the Dionysian. The Dionysian meets the Apollonian to speak with Nietzsche. Absolutely. Um, And, 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 but yeah, and then also to be able to, and this is the Heideggerian, to be able to let go, right? There's, there's letting something occur in and of itself. I think that's the art of any good teacher anyways, is that seminars must take on their own life. They, needn't, they mustn't be sterile. They mustn't be standardized. They mustn't have learning outcomes. One of the things I loathe the most are that you want is required to give learning outcomes. There are no learning outcomes in philosophy. We don't know. We are confronted with a text every single time I read Heidegger again for the 50 billionth time. There's something there I hadn't seen before. Um, and the it, this is, I think, very important to not try and so you need it to some degree that instrumental rationality but then there's a free flow and it's i can say from my own personal experience in terms of youtube um, very often the weirdest videos with the worst quality and the less the least views sorry um, have an impact on people you wouldn't even believe who reaches out to you it, it need just be the one right human being who has an interest in speaking with you afterwards with whatever you're building, right? So it, it it it's not about the numbers, it's not about ramping up get billions of views, etc. It's about something else. It's about creating and this is that's what's exhilarating about this. It's I don't want to sound like a cliche, but I'm a musician too, right? That there's nothing stopping me from making my own music every single day um or to 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 have these weird conversations with strange people all over the world that i would never have met um without putting myself out there from whom i'm learning and i'm grateful to uh, be acquainted with and um and it it, it's it's always the attempt to not try to be standardized but to break out. And you, you have to cultivate. It's, it's really, it's a self-cultivation project, right? Self-cultivation in what sense? In the sense that you always accelerate on that, uh, which which enriches you as you go through it.
0: Absolutely. And that is precisely what's at stake in the Delosian line of flight. In other words, you don't actually access that truly free creative plane that true art takes place on unless you are able to swerve away from the capture of instrumental rationality. And that's exactly what we're trying to model and understand better and really refine our understanding of the mechanics of that because there are real challenges involved. I mean, there are people listening to this, I am sure, who have some kind of creative project, whether it be writing or they wanna make videos or they want to do music or whatever. And they wake up in the morning and there is something that just blocks them from sitting down at the desk and doing the thing that they know they wanna do. And that more often than not is essentially the apparatus of capture because what it is is you're often thinking, what are people going to think about this? And then you think to yourself, if I publish this video or I publish this song or I publish this blog post, well, first of all, maybe no one's gonna read it. Chances are no one's gonna read it. Maybe you don't have any audience yet, right? So it's instrumentally not rational for you to work on that piece of art, okay? So yep. out of the gate, you're blocked from doing anything, you're off the line of flight, you're not you're you're oppressed, you're captured because of in, because of that instrumental rational calculation. But then there are layers to this. That's not even the, the the only hurdle, right? Because even if let's say you have a little bit of an audience, right? Um so you know that someone's going to watch your video or someone's going to listen to your song or someone's going to read your blog post. Maybe even a hearty little number, that is more than enough to motivate a creative person. Yep next your consideration again instrumental rationality is oh but this isn't good enough they're not going to like it they're not going to you know give me accolades they're not going to be impressed my my social standing is not going to improve from this particular item so therefore i'm not going to post it and so it's like there are layers to this capture through instrumental rationality there are layers to how the apparatus yeah. of capture functions and um the line of flight or Kind of poetic existence in the Heideggerian register is precisely about how to access that true plane of creativity, where you are able to actually just create. Yeah, Gestell,
1: right. This essence of technology in framing wants to appear as exclusive. That's, that's it. That's actually that's, look, look out for this. It wants to be exclusive. This is the only way there's no alternative, et um, And And that's also it's weak that's where it fractures. And the, the art is always in being playful, right? Um, the, there's a wonderful line in the poem by Chesterton. Uh, I remember only this line where he says, the world was very old indeed when you and I were young. And in a conversation with someone I had recently, this gentleman said, well, this is because we have forgotten our sense of play. And it's the playfulness aspect that's really high in Heidegger. And there's a question by Alice in the chat that I just see, which ties in with this. Um, Alice asks, how do I get into reading Deleuze and Heidegger with minimum knowledge about philosophy? Um, I will say this about Heidegger. The texts that we consider in the course are, in fact, um, they're quite meditative. So, there will be passages where he goes into Aristotle and Plato, etc., and there will be weird Greek words. But I would read them, as so often with Heidegger, he always comes back. He's very slow because he remember he gives these talks to laymen, not to philosophers. So very, and he gives very concrete examples too. And they put one in um, again. A, a a realm you could almost say where something else begins to light. I mean, we've seen this. We saw this in the last course. There were people who had no prior knowledge of Heidegger, uh, and then became art and reader, readers of Heidegger afterwards. Um, who so I would so the texts we consider are not the you know the, the very technical uh, Heideggerian texts, but some that are really. Um, Open to a playful engagement with a phenomenology of experiencing our epoch, and trying. To, this is what Heidegger is always about. He's trying to make to show what it means to be. What does it mean to be human? That's his question.
0: And also, that's what what school really is supposed to be is essentially, you know, what yeah. Plato calls serious play. Uh, essentially a, a kind of cultivated leisure. That's that's really what a true school from the founding of Western civilization has always supposed to have been, a place where people can come together and play with ideas, but not in a way that's diminutive or childish or frivolous, but to play like real adults.
1: And it's very important you bring in school because the word English word school comes from scolet, That's right. Uh, Which we Greek, which we translate as leisure. Um, We could also perhaps say as idleness. And so, what what these uh, schools, respectively, that we're building, um, are are, I think, interestingly more traditionally modeled on this uh, than than universities are today. That's right. Because there is no certificate. um, There is. There's no degree. There is simply the invitation to begin to think, and then also to to build and start. We had so many different people. We had we had a musician there. Remember, we had Alex who was a music producer, um, and we had uh, Kevin who's an artist who uh, actually built a bit of an artwork that he showed us at the pro seminar after yeah, the lectures. Um, so it it it's about learning how to to see the world for what it is. And by seeing it, that's how, that's where escape is generated.
0: Absolutely. That's right. And it's by design that we don't offer things like degrees or these trappings of instrumental rationality, because to achieve that leisurely mature play that a true school or Skolle is supposed to be, you have to go out of your way to evacuate the system of these instrumental trappings in a way. Uh, So it's very paradoxical. It's very ironic uh, and and kind of hard to to process at first. But basically, it's something like by creating systems where we can bring in other people interested in thinking about these things truly and honestly and deeply, where we try as hard as possible to not give them instrumentally rational results, the irony is that through this process, you can actually achieve the extraordinary value, perhaps is a word to use, um, which is a a little too close to instrumental rationality, but it's something like value that school was always intended to be in the first place and no longer is. Um, So there's a kind of dialectical paradox there where carving out instrumental rationality and kind of keeping it out Keeping it at bay as systematically as possible, um, somehow in this paradoxical fashion, gets you the th- gets us all the things that we really want and need, but they are beyond instrumental rationality, or something like that.
1: Yeah, and it it, it in terms of Heidegger, it comes back to being really being lear- cultivating the um, capacity to see concealment and consider, um, our concealments of our own. And also always that not, nothing, even as, as extremely, um, powerful as it may seem is, uh, is eternal. We, we are still finite beings. And, um, even though there are the fantasies of transhumanism to be immortal, the strangest thing is that the one thing they're fighting is death. So, their entire existence seems to be predicated on death, which is what they're trying to get away from. But.
0: yeah, well, I think that's I think that's as good a place as any to maybe pause. I wouldn't say end the discussion because yeah. it's only just begun, and that's what the course is all about. But uh, we are coming up on hour and a half now. So um, I don't, want, I'm sure you're busy. I'm sure you have other things to do as well. Um, uh, are there are there any kind of final thoughts you wanted to get out there, or um should I just basically remind people that uh, this is a major focus for us right now? We're launching the course on, November twenty second will be the first date. Uh, I need. I still need to release some of the the exact details, but uh, that's the start date that will happen. And uh, yeah. really, if you're if you're even just curious whether you're sure or not, you want to join whatever it doesn't matter. You can just grab the syllabus from the link in the show notes and uh, have a look at the reading list. Use it for yourself if you want to. No obligation to actually join the course. Um, but yeah, if you're so, if you're even curious, go grab the syllabus and then I'll email you with more information after you uh, grab the syllabus. Is how that's going to work?
1: Yeah. and... Just a word on the twenty second. That's going to be um, a, a webinar for anyone who's who wants to join it. And then the course um, starts a week after. Yeah, that's um, right. The it, way
0: I, this is the way I did it with Nina's course. It seemed to work really well. So basically, the on the, on November twenty second, we'll have what I generally call a kind of meet and greet or an yeah. orientation. That'll be the first day, the kickoff of the of the of the course, which will last about eight weeks in in all. We'll take a break for Christmas, so people can spend time with their family and all of that. But uh, the first day on the November 22nd will be all the people who enroll in the course. Um, But also, if people are just on the fence, uh, they're more than welcome to join and get a sense of who's all gathered there and the types of people that they're going to be doing this pretty intensive eight week experience with. Um, The reason I do it that way is because I'm 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 pretty confident that uh, people who come to the orientation are going to be quite pleasantly surprised by just the quality and the intensity of. The other minds who who gather into these courses i've been so pleased by it so on that orientation uh pretty much anyone who's anyone who grabs the syllabus anyone who i have on my email list will get an invite to that um and that'll kick things off and it'll be awesome
1: i look forward to that so i'll see everyone and you justin in 10 days
0: yep nice to see you johannes thanks for coming on the channel (laughs) and uh if anyone has any questions they can dm me or send me an email or whatever Um, obviously subscribe to my channel and click that little bell so you know when i go live and you don't miss it same for johannes i put a link to his youtube channel in the show notes also so go ahead and subscribe to him all right yeah if you need anything from us you can contact us personally we're always happy to talk otherwise i hope to see you all uh on the 22nd if you're interested in doing an intensive uh and heidegger seminar on on philosophy of technology develop your own ideas and uh yeah i'll send out an email with some some details on the structure because uh, I have a few innovations that are going to make this course even better than the last one. And the last one was really quite uh, appreciated by all the people who took part of it. So I'm super pumped. Uh, Johannes, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks. Right. Thank you all. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you'd like this episode, you should send it to a friend. Just email it to them or post it on your social networks, whatever. And to learn more about what we discussed in this podcast or to send me questions to address in future episodes, please just go to otherlife.co and you'll find everything there. There's actually a ton of cool stuff on there. So check it out if you haven't already. Thanks again, folks. I'll see you here next time.